From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Pervoy Morich on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Amazing chat last hour with Hannah Faulkner, Culture of 1776.com. If you missed it, check the archives. It will be posted very shortly. And we need to be helping the youth. They are one of the biggest answers to all of the insanity that is going on. Um, and I'll have uh, coming up this hour, Daniel McCarthy. It'll be his second time with me. And he also does great work. You can find him on Twitter, X at Tory Anarchist. Uh, I thought I'd mention, um, I was interviewed recently for Lies Are Unbecoming, a uh, Substack, uh, popular Substack. I think he's based in Australia. It was a written interview. Uh, and so you can you can check that out. Um, algorithm ghetto news. What would it what, what would a day be without some algorithm ghetto news? Bhutan boosts digital ID signups. Philippines and Barbados face struggles. And it says Bhutan is steadily boosting the number of its digital ID users since the launch launch of Bhutan's blockchain-based digital ID just over three months ago. More than 19,000 people have requested a foundational ID, which is issued while launching the national digital ID. It says, um, what does it say? That they are slowly integrating the self-sovereign identity scheme into government services. And it says that the wallets, uh, it says uh, the wallets um, will also be expanding to include services from finance education telecommunications tax health and utilities again the point here is that countries will make digital ids mandatory um and then to do anything like it's just listed to do your taxes health stuff utilities telecommunication education finance you know public or private services you're gonna have to have a digital id and then again if you're a bad boy or girl, they can just shut off your digital ID. So you can't do any of that. So you can't live life. Uh, insane. Insane how people are just accepting this without questioning. Some good news for the folks out in uh, the Netherlands. Amsterdam mayor calls for regulation of cocaine as crime thrives. Amsterdam mayor has called for the regulation of the sale and use of cocaine to undermine the economics of criminal enterprises that she said are racking up billions in profit. The mayor has also sought to curtail drug-seeking vacationers from visiting the Dutch capital city. So, you know, maybe not a completely horrible uh, idea because maybe that would deal with the violent cartels. By the way, I mentioned this story before, but um, there's this crazy cab driver He's now visited, tried to visit my home for the third time uh, to sell me crack cocaine. The story before was one of my friends visited. Uh, he had tattoos in the beard. And so the guy thought, you know, he's a drug dealer, which he's not. He doesn't even drink alcohol, my friend. And the guy um, knows where I live now, the taxi driver. He's come back a second time with the security and the third time thinking like, wink, wink. I'm, I, I've been thinking about it. Maybe I want to buy some white powder. Never done it never going to do it. I know people personally who have died at a young age from using that stuff. I know people still who are using it uh, and are it's wrecking their lives. Yeah, don't don't do drugs. Um, kids, uh, what um, what else is going 
on in the world, a city of 710,000 struggles to cope with 40,000 migrant arrivals. That's out in Denver. Um, nearly 40,000 migrants have arrived in Denver over the past year. So we, we got that insanity going. Um, Fox reports that George Soros pours millions into Texas in hopes of shifting power to the Democrats. He's donated over $3 million to at least five left-wing groups in Texas alone. Uh, absolutely crazy. Um, and speaking of Texas, Russian lawmaker Sergei Mironov has come out and tweeted. He said, quote, in the conflict between Texas and the United States, I am on the side of the state. At least Texas doesn't interfere in other countries' affairs. If necessary, we are ready to help with an independence referendum. And of course, we will recognize the Texas People's Republic if there is one. Good luck. We are we are with you. Um, and some more news real quick. Uh, Australia must consider bringing back cons conscription as all-out war with Russia looms, says a quote expert. Uh, but really, the thing is here now, all across the Western mainstream garbage, Pentagon, CIA, MI6, um, you know, media, it's it's an orchestra it's all they're, they're all echoing the same thing get ready for war we're going going to war germany needs to roll out conscription australia uh, uk usa um you know just here's here's more of this war porn the telegraph says what war could mean for life in modern britain so they're kind of like priming the pump here preparing us for war telegraph again says another article why it may already be too late for the west to avoid war so it's like a foregone conclusion we're we're going to war um and i think they're going to take us to war that's what they've been wanting to do in their white papers they say they can use war uh as the pretext to bring about world government and of course build back better and and just today german uh build puts out an article propaganda again saying every second german fears a putin attack Come on, by the way, over the weekend, a Mexican friend of mine who's got um, a German colleague who, who his German colleague um, told him that he thinks by next year, the EU won't exist, that it's going to collapse. So um, it looks like the elites aren't getting ready for war. Um, you know, another Substack collapse2050.com or, or, or website that I've been become familiar with uh, just also published the pre prepping for World War Three. Governments will send you to war. War is approaching. Millions or even billions of lives are at stake, and you will be required to fight. Uh, and meanwhile, the Times reports that NATO is planning a military Schengen, uh, the EU army that's always been part of the plan. Uh, and just more madness going on um, as well all around the world. Uh, a quick reminder to give TNT a follow. We're on all the major social platforms, alt tech platforms as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, Getter, Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on TNT. It's the stuff. It's that division. People are talking about. And that cluelessness that they want to push. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. In a historic decision, the Hong Kong, Hong Kong court on Monday ordered the liquidation of property giant China Evergrande's group, the world's most indebted developer, after an 18-month-long hearing. Here with the story, joining me once again, TNT News producer Adam Clark, codename Ruckus. 
Thanks, Rory. Uh, yeah, remember this one? <laughs> uh, Evergrande. Wow. Um, well, it's done. Uh, enough is enough, as it were. Oh, actually, that's pretty much what was said. Uh, Judge Linda Chan de uh, delivered this ruling, saying, and I'm quoting, it is time for the court to say enough is enough, end quote, after the troubled developer repeatedly failed to come up with a convincing plan to restructure its debts. The company had been given seven extensions since the court proceedings began in 2022. The real estate firm, which first ran into trouble refinancing its debt in 2020, now faces a total of 2.39 trillion yuan, or three hundred and thirty three billion U.S. dollars of total liabilities, a figure that significantly outweighs its one point seven four trillion yuan, two hundred forty billion dollars in assets. Much of the latter are in mainland China, which is a different jurisdiction than Hong Kong. The liquidation petition was lodged by Top Shrine in June of 2022, an investor in Evergrande until Feng Xiaobao, which claimed the developer had failed to honor an agreement to repurchase shares it had bought in the subsidiary. Evergrande sent China's struggling property sector into a tailspin when it defaulted on its debt in 2021. The company's troubles affected China's entire real estate market, with companies accounting for 40% of home sales defaulting on their debt obligations since mid-2021, including Kaiser Group and Ximao Group Holdings. The liquidation ruling will likely further hit the country's capital and property markets, according to experts. Following Monday's decision, the judge appointed Alvarez and Marsal as the liquidator, which is expected to take control of Evergrande's assets, negotiate with creditors on debt restructuring, and take over management of the company. Um, Reuters had a report quoting Tiffany Wong, managing director of Alvarez, Alvarez and Marcel, uh, after the appointment, saying, quote, our priority is to see as much of the business as possible retained, restructured and remain operational. We will we will pursue a structured approach to preserve and return value to the creditors and other stakeholders, end quote. Evergrande had been working on a $23 billion debt revamp plan, but that fell apart in September when the company announced its founder, billionaire Hui Ka Yan, was under investigation for suspected crimes. Uh, Gary Enyang, senior economist at Nat Texas, said, quote, it is not an end, but the beginning of the prolonged process of liquidation, which will make Evergrande's daily operations even harder. As most of Evergrande's assets are in mainland China, there are uncertainties about how the creditors can seize the assets and the repayment rank of offshore bondholders, and situation can be even worse for shareholders, end quote. Evergrande acting CEO Xiao Shan told Chinese media that the company would ensure home building projects will still be delivered despite the liquidation order. The ruling will not affect the operations of Evergrande's onshore and offshore units, he added. Uh, regardless, uh, as you guessed, uh, the stock went down. The company's stock fell by more than 20% in Hong Kong after the liquidation ruling was announced and trading in the shares 
has now been suspended. Rory, what do you think about this? So the first thing that comes to mind for me would be my discussions with Gregory Copley of the International Strategic Studies uh, Association, uh, both on my podcast and on um, TNT over the last couple years. Uh, and he spoke specifically to this um, where, you know, we're seeing economic problems in China all over the place. You know, we have a lot of these war hawks that say China is going to collapse. I'm not certain that, you know, that I don't think that's going to happen. But the point is that governments all across the planet now, we're, we're facing this economic cliff. Uh, and what Copley said was that basically the game here is to be the last to the bottom, uh, right? To be try to be the last man standing in terms of the economy that, that that seems to sort of be um the game and you know in, in some ways after world war ii that's what helped america out a lot that um you know europe was destroyed and america was standing and had its manufacturing capability and and that helped us out uh a lot and maybe we're in a similar situation here uh right now but um you know there are all the multipolaristas on the flip side also say oh china's doing fantastic nothing is wrong to to say that um you know everything is is amazing in in china and so um yeah your further thoughts well yeah it's not a good sign for anybody around the world when large corporation i mean not a corporation but a, a this this thing was huge i mean and this is going down in history as having like carrying the most amount of debt failure to uh, resolve that and now it's the end and it's going to take two years to liquidate this i don't know what the um the everlasting effects of the Evergrande are going to be, but it does not bode well. And I don't know what these these people think they're going to get out of it in a race to the bottom. What new promises have been made for the world's elites? What what is the power structure going to look like without like the movements of these little pieces of money? I don't understand. Nobody does. I think we're in the eye of the storm here. Uh, I think. Um ruckus uh and it's just and, and you know i think one thing governments will try to be tr try to hide these developments and and tell us oh look over there don't look at the crashing economy you know what you know netanyahu netanyahu in one sense has been doing it in israel nobody likes him uh so you know let's start a war or let's do this or let's do that different scandals that that, that come up you know that robert de niro wag the dog film uh, i think it was where you know, there was a scandal with the president so let's just start a war in um albania or or they faked it uh, um and, and and whatnot so but in any case the big point here is that the economy continues its downward spiral uh and we should all be preparing for whatever it is uh to come uh, all right ruckus thank you for that uh we've got daniel mccarthy coming up uh shortly feel free to call in and chat with us we'll be right back TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature, but their interactions with the public is stifled. And she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also. The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs, I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois, 
And this dog, this Malinois, is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles. Is lying under my desk at the moment, feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right mind goes to their boss and says, would you mind? I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay because I've got other priorities in a, in a town down the road. Jeremy now on today's News Talk TNT. Take us back in time. And who was Mike Flynn? He was the national security advisor to the president. Why is it that they go after me so hard? Why me? Why does Barack Obama only talk about two people to the incoming president of the United States? When I was sentenced, the judge says, you have been convicted of lying to cover up for Donald Trump. To which I say, cover up what? Russian collusion? There was no Russian collusion to cover up. We see in today's current uh, scenario with President Joe Biden, who came in with high expectations, that he has been viewed as divisive. And we're committed to advancing transgender equality in the classroom. The liberal media say, well, this is his love for his son, and yes, he's going to protect his son. But let me tell you, a lot of fathers love their sons, but their sons had to go to jail when they broke the law. At this moment, people see a lot of those telltale signs of a far left drift to the country. Whether you're talking about socialism or you're talking about communism, socialism is just a kinder cousin of communism. But the goal is the same, for the state to have control of every aspect of your life. We have multiple hearings on different agencies that have actually just gone rogue. They took fewer men in the takedown of El Chapo than they did to arrest me. And Comey went back to his organization and brought his other thugs together to basically give them the ground rules. Okay, here's how we're gonna, here's what we're gonna do. And give, now I need some ideas about how to execute this, basically this act of treason. I think we all know, James Comey, that you're a great storyteller because you made up the entire story about Crossfire Hurricane. So it's really fitting that a criminal like yourself wrote a crime novel. Do you remember me? Remember me from your book signing? It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat. People will sell their soul to obtain an ounce of political power in Washington, D.C. I don't even know that draining the swamp is the appropriate metaphor anymore after what we've seen these last four years. We need basically an exorcism in Washington, D.C. When, you know, Satan is tempting Jesus in the desert, I'll, I'll give you all the riches of the world. I'll give you everything. All you have to do is bow to me. That's what Barack Obama has done. That's what Jim Comey has done. That's what these bastards have done. The Fall of Deceit at SalemNow.com Are we on the air? Am I on the air? You're on the air. On the air 24-7. Your news talk giant. TNT. Returning to the broadcast, it's it's been a while. Is Daniel McCarthy, editor of the Modern Age, a conservative review editor at large of the American Conservative. His writing has appeared in many mainstream conservative and libertarian publications. I believe last time uh, he was on, we discussed the book, The Conservative Affirmation, uh, for which he wrote a a foreword. But um, and you can find him on Twitter X at Tory Anarchist. Uh, he's he does a lot of great commentary. Welcome back to TNT, Daniel. Thank you. Uh, like I said, I, I've very much been enjoying um, your writing. And and recently, some of the stuff you've been focusing on relates to Trump. Uh, you've been talking about 
Trump's um, map to the White House. So much is is going on regarding uh, the elections, uh, politics. And so, um, you know, what are some of your thoughts about where we are and where we might be headed? Well, you know, this is a rare instance where polling and some of the conventional wisdom proved to be correct. So all the polling uh, last year said that Donald Trump would have a very easy time getting the Republican presidential nomination. And that proves to be the case. He had a very easy time defeating Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in Iowa. And now in New Hampshire as well, he had, uh, you know, a sort of romp right to the uh, number one position. Uh, from here on out, it seems as if the um, the primary season is basically a formality. Nikki Haley still has a lot of money behind her. She's going to cause as much trouble as she possibly can, but she has no real realistic shot at the uh, Republican nomination. Trump's going to be the nominee. We know that uh, it looks like Biden is going to be the nominee on the Democratic side as well, despite all of his weaknesses. And so you have a rematch of 2020 set up, and you're going to have a very long uh, campaign season between the two of them, uh, really starting now and going all the way through to November. And it's going to be, I think, uh, a remarkably nasty and, you know, sort of, um, if you thought firepower in the media was arrayed against Donald Trump before, uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to be a really remarkable campaign against him, not just by Joe Biden, but by all of the mainstream media. And of course, you're also seeing this lawfare on top of it, 90 plus, uh, you know, criminal charges and other um, kinds of accusations leveled against uh, Donald Trump in court. Uh, we've seen, you know, private cases have already, uh, you know, reached decisions against Trump. And you're going to see more and more piled on, I think, as you go along here, even though it's quite clear that as we see in Georgia, for example, that uh, you have a lot of corruption on the part of some of the prosecutors and uh, other officials that are involved in going after Trump. So this is a, it's going to be not just a, you know, uh, a normal presidential campaign between one party's candidate and another. This is actually going to be the system itself being put on trial. And uh, Donald Trump is on one side representing, you know, the view that the system is entirely corrupt. And on the other side, you have the entire establishment saying that, uh, you know, Donald Trump must be sent to jail, not just defeated as a candidate. Yeah, it was interesting to see Ron DeSantis uh, drop out Vivek Ramaswamy um, as well. And uh, just your thought, I, I think it was I thought it was interesting to hear today, yesterday, that RFK Jr. now might run as a libertarian so he can be on the ballot in all states. And any thought uh, on RFK and that move? Yeah, I've heard that uh, the RFK campaign has indeed looked into that. Um, I'm rather skeptical that it's going to happen. It seems to me that um, RFK might not even be willing to do the sort of token gestures that would be necessary to identify himself as a libertarian and to make a credible bid for that party's nomination. But it's certainly, uh, you know, the Libertarian Party does show that it has uh, one significant strength that is very attractive to a number of potential candidates, and that is that it does have this ballot access. It's able to get people on the ballot pretty much in every state. And um, it's important for the party as well, for the Libertarian Party, that it have a high-profile candidate so that it gets enough votes in all 50 states that it can maintain that ballot access. So even though there is, I know, a lot of uh, reservations that many philosophical libertarians have about reaching out to candidates who are like RFK Jr. or candidates, you know, uh, ex-Republicans, for example, who may have run on the Libertarian uh, Party ticket in the past, nevertheless, it is useful for the party to be able to maintain that kind of ballot access and to continue to be, you know, a sort of an alternative, however, um, you know, uh, unlikely it may be that the Libertarian Party is actually going to elect a president. Nevertheless, maintaining that ballot access, having that kind of venue for uh, a critic of the uh, you know establishment, is a very important thing, and it does you know keep the Libertarian Party in the game in one sense or another. 
Yeah, I think I read as, as well this morning, uh, Michael Rechtenwald, who, who I'm a big fan of, uh, who I've interviewed. I, I met him last year in LA at a conference. Um, I think he said he's going to be debating RFK Jr. He's running as, as well, I think, uh, as a libertarian presidential um, candidate. And uh, you, know, you, you mentioned uh, Nikki Haley, and you know I, I call her never neocon Nikki Haley, the second coming of Hillary Rand Paul. Just um, I, you know, he made a website for her. Uh, and, and any thought on uh, Nikki Haley? Well, that's right. So Rand Paul launched a, uh, a never Nikki website. And uh, she really does seem to be sort of the second coming of John McCain in terms of having uh, extremely hawkish views on every single possible foreign policy conflict. Um, you know, I would listen to her during the debates with uh, Ron DeSantis and the other second tier candidates, and it sounded like she wanted to get into three or four different wars all simultaneously. And of course, Joe Biden has kind of stumbled into that situation himself. But I think Nikki Haley would deliberately get into it and would, in fact, even expand uh, all the conflicts that we're already enmeshed in. So she really is a throwback to the George W. Bush and Dick Cheney era. And uh, she certainly doesn't seem to have caught fire with the Republican, uh, actually the Republican part of the Republican Party, right? So if you look at her vote in New Hampshire, she got a respectable 40%, but it was mostly coming from people who did not identify as Republicans. So in other words, some of them were independents who might have otherwise been voting Democrat. Uh, remember that Joe Biden wasn't even on the ballot in New Hampshire. He wasn't competing there. So a lot of people who may have ideologically been more uh, Biden style, they had every incentive in the world to interfere in the Republican primary and vote for Nikki Haley just to cause some chaos in the GOP and inconvenience Donald Trump. Haley is, uh, you know, she represents, however, not just, um, you know, the the, uh, the neocons. She really is the sort of perfect uh, bipartisan, you know, uniparty uh, kind of, um, you know, establishment uh, militarist candidate, imperial candidate. And, uh, you know, the, the voters are rejecting her quite soundly, but unfortunately she does have a lot of money. And it was, um, you know, a very tragic thing to see that uh, the Koch network, which is this, you know, sort of network of, of billionaires, most of whom think of themselves as variants, they put their money and they put their grassroots organizing muscle behind Nikki Haley's effort. And that, I think, is what's really kept her alive, uh, you know, since Iowa and is propelling her forward. Well, I'm I'm glad that people are sort of figuring this out uh, regarding Nikki, and I think you um, exp um, described her uh, per perfect um, right there. But she does seem to have a lot of backing. But hopefully, she too uh, drops out. We're going to jump to our headlines uh, real quick. What's happening? News flash. TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. The drone attack on a U.S. base by militants backed by Iran, resulting in the deaths of three U.S. soldiers, has heightened concerns about escalating tensions in the Middle East. Billionaire currency speculator George Soros is behind at least five liberal groups seeking to flip the Republican stronghold of Texas for the Democrats in the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Australia has paused its funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Following allegations of staff involvement in a Hamas-led terrorist attack against Israel on October 7th. On air. And on the app. I listen on the app. Stay up to date around the clock. I listen, therefore I know. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. We are talking to Daniel McCarthy. Follow him on Twitter, X, at Tory uh, Anarchist. You'll see all of the articles that he writes are, are, are posted there and uh just to go back for a moment all the lawfare you mentioned against trump i'm wondering how far this stuff can go do you think that eventually trump will defeat all of this insane 
lawfare because it, and it's really starting to seem like a banana banana republic i mean it's absolutely um ridiculous but i i think just was it yesterday that some defamation case some lady like 60 70 million dollars against him um it's just really becoming cartoonish and clownish now but do you think eventually all this stuff is gonna fall away or or they're gonna like push hard uh, against trump yeah, most of it is intended for political effect. It's done in order to damage Donald Trump's reputation, and it's also done in order to excite the Democratic base and to get them fired up about going to the polls to vote for Joe Biden in November. And of course, you know, um, significant segments of the Democratic base are very unhappy with Joe Biden. They're unhappy with his domestic policy. They're certainly unhappy with his foreign policy. Uh, um, some, some segments of the progressive movement call Joe Biden genocide Joe. Biden really has a very fragmented base, a very fragmented party. But what he's trying to do is to use Donald Trump as such a figure of hatred, a kind of Emmanuel Goldstein figure, if you remember 1984 by George Orwell. But they're trying to use uh, Donald Trump as such a polarizing figure that he himself will unify the Democratic Party in opposition. And the lawfare is part of that. The lawfare is a way of saying, hey, Donald Trump is not just an ordinary Republican who's running for office that we can either uh, you know, defeat or lose to. No. Instead, Donald Trump is an existential threat to the rule of law and the American Republic. And therefore, we really have to, you know, pull out all the stops, uh, you know, not just at the ballot box, but also uh, behind the scenes in the judi judiciary and uh, in the courtrooms in order to try to prevent Donald Trump even from being on the ballot, let alone from being a, a candidate in November. Now, most of that is going to fail. Uh, it's actually very hard, first of all, uh, for Democrats to succeed in taking Donald Trump off the ballot state by state. Even in, in states where Donald Trump's name does not appear on a ballot, he can still get either the uh, delegates to a convention or the electors to the ele electoral college, who actually are the ones that uh, are responsible for, first of all, uh, picking the Republican presidential nominee at the Republican National Convention, or who are responsible ultimately for picking the president when the Electoral College meets and then sends its results to uh, Washington, D.C. One of the ironies here, by the way, is that if you actually do have states that take Donald Trump off the ballot in the general election, and nevertheless, you know, you would still have Donald Trump's running mate listed on that, on that ballot. And if the running mate uh, wins that election against, you know, the Trump, uh, sorry, the Biden-Harris uh, um, uh, ticket, the Donald Trump running mate would then get the Electoral College votes for that state. Now, you know, would you then have this interesting spectacle come January of 2025, where Vice President Kamala Harris, in her role as president of the U.S. Senate, would be opening up these uh, envelopes from the Electoral College in all the different 50 states and starts getting out the uh, results and counting the results. That's the official duty of the vice president during that phase of the uh, you know official process of counting the electoral votes and determining who the new president is. Would she then do what Mike Pence didn't do back in 2021? You know, Mike Pence refused to throw out votes that Republicans were contesting, saying, oh, these electoral college votes aren't legitimate, and therefore, you know, they should not go to Joe Biden. Well, Kamala Harris is going to be in exactly the same place that Mike Pence was in on January 6th of 2021 if she decides that she wants to start throwing out votes from Republicans that, uh, or states that have voted Republican because she thinks that Donald Trump doesn't deserve to be on the ballot. I actually don't think it's going to get to that point because I suspect the Supreme Court is going to weigh in long before then and say that these efforts to take Donald Trump off the ballot are illegitimate.
But I should say that, you know, even that furthers the progressive, the left-wing democratic agenda, because they're very happy to have their voters very angry at the Supreme Court in order to say that, oh, look, the Supreme Court is corrupt. That's all the more reason you need to re-elect Joe Biden, you need to elect a democratic Senate so that we can get a lot of, you know, sort of puppet judges, puppet justices onto the Supreme Court and make sure that in the future, the Supreme Court never rules against us whether it's on abortion and something like Roe v. Wade, or whether it's on uh, you know, keeping a Republican candidate on the ballot uh, in the general election. And, and that would sort of lead me to my next question, because that, you know, that situation with Mike Pence, it was almost like a civil war, a second civil war moment. And then, um, you know, what's happening in Texas now? Uh, last week, I interviewed J. Michael Waller, um, who wrote the book Big Intel? He was formerly in in the CIA and elsewhere, and he was saying that this could be a civil war moment where you've got the federal government firing at Texas National Guard, and and it's kind of eerie that you know in in April of this year there's a film coming out called Civil War where Texas is battling the, <laughs> the federal government. Uh, someone just brought to my attention the other day a movie from 1997, talking about a second civil war with the same scenario that's happening right now. And so it's it's very uh, worrying. Um, what are your thoughts as to what's what's going on with Texas um, and the illegal aliens and, and, and the, the uh, border situation? Well, you know, it's ironic because in the original Civil War, uh, the South, the Confederacy, did not like a number of federal laws. They did not like the fact that federal troops were stationed in uh, Fort Sumter, South Carolina and that uh, South Carolina then fired on those troops in order to get rid of them. Um, what you have now is actually the state of Texas trying to basically enforce federal law, trying to enforce the immigration law that's meant to be uh, on the books and enforced by the United States president. But it's the president who's actually acting like uh, the Constitution is something that you know one can pick and choose what you want to enforce in, and that the federal laws are something that uh, the president can just arbitrarily decide to nullify and not enforce. So Texas is actually very, very much on the side of the rule of law here. And Joe Biden is the one who's acting as a kind of lawless and revolutionary figure. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. I don't think this is quite a, uh, you know, something that's likely to lead to a, an actual civil war. But it does, uh, you know, sort of um, firm up this sort of clash, not just between a state and the federal government, but in fact, really between a state on the one hand, federal law also on the side of the state, and simply Joe Biden and his executive branch acting against the Constitution as well as against the state and against the interests of ordinary Americans. Um, that, I think, is a battle which, uh, before it gets to you know, any kind of significant, uh, you know, sort of really large-scale um, you know, violence or other uh, you know, extreme problems, I think Joe Biden's going to realize he's just holding such a weak hand and has so few cards to play that he's likely to um, back off before we get to that point. But it'll be, um, unfortunately, a, a very, uh, you know, uh, intense experience to see what's going to happen over the next few weeks. You know, and, and another battle in this war that's going on within uh, uh, America. And I don't know if you've been, uh, I've been enjoying a lot of Tucker Carlson's um, interviews. He's pumping out a lot of stuff with fascinating people. And he did an interview not long ago with Clay Higgins, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, and, and Clay Higgins is trying to impeach now uh, the head of the DHS, Mayorkas. Uh, and, and and I wouldn't mind if that happened because it was Mayorkas's DHS that banned me from PayPal. You know, I'm I'm considering that political persecution in 2022 for just doing what we're doing 
right now. And so, you know, your your thoughts on some of these other battles that are taking place, like, you know, Clay Higgins pushing uh, to impeach uh, the head of the DHS. It's about time. You know, um, impeachment was meant to be a process that would be used most often uh, against corrupt and uh, malfeasant and nonfeasant uh, federal appointees uh, below the level of the president. So obviously, you know, we have these spectacular and failed impeachments of, uh, you know, Bill Clinton in the 1990s, uh, two impeachments of uh, Donald Trump uh, in the past few years. But really, impeachment is something that should be used much more often against, uh, you know, federal appointees like Secretary Mayorkas, who are not either not doing their job or who are, in fact, kind of sabotaging uh, the law itself. Uh, we've seen a lot of that over the years. We've seen a lot of, uh, you know, um, not just you know secretaries of uh, you know homeland security, but secretaries of all kinds of departments who have overstepped the constitutional bounds of their authority. And oftentimes the president will say, "Oh gosh, what could I possibly do?" You know, it's not my fault. It's my staff who are you know out of control. And uh, Congress has the power to actually rein these people in and to basically you know to impeach them, to remove them, and then to say to the president, "Look, uh, you can put in another person there now, but if that person does the same things, we're also going to impeach and remove that one as well." And uh, ultimately, you yourself are going to get impeached and removed if you keep this up. It's a great way of disciplining the executive branch, of making sure that it enforces the law and sticks to the Constitution. And it hasn't been used nearly enough in the history of our, our nation. And, and sort of along those lines, again, last week in my discussion with J. Michael Waller, he brought up Mayorkas and how Mayorkas was born in, in, in Cuba. Uh, and then he might have these sympathies more towards Marxism, cultural Marxism, globalism, whatever you want to call it um, today. And I, I saw you shared this story from Financial Times on your Twitter feed, which I also um, found that was fascinating, which talks about now that there's this ideological divide emerging between young men and, and women in many countries around the world. Uh, they talked about, for example, that women aged 18 to 30 are now 30 percentage points more liberal than their male contemporaries. And um, you know, maybe that's one reason I read recently that the DHS was going after the manosphere uh, because, you know, there's been a resurgence in the manosphere of men wanting to be um, manly again. And that happened to me 20 years ago. I was uh, being indoctrinated into becoming like a metrosexual and I discovered the art of manliness and I'm like, no, I need to learn how to be a man again. Uh, and so um, your sort of thoughts um, in the in the spheres of, of what's going on in the society and, and, and culture. Yeah, you know, that is a parallel to something that we also see as a class divide in America and elsewhere in the world, which is that the most highly educated persons, or at least the most highly credentialed persons who have educational degrees, whether that's the same thing as education, I'll let the listeners themselves decide. But in any case, people with uh, university degrees and advanced degrees are increasingly voting left-wing, and people who have only a high school education or less are increasingly voting for a more populist right. Um, now, this, I think, actually is a parallel to the division you see increasingly among young men and young women, where young men are more on the right and young women are increasingly on the left, uh, increasingly liberal. It's um, because you also have the sort of dominance now of women within the educational establishment and certainly within higher education. More women now than men uh, are generally going to college. They're getting, uh, they're graduating, they're getting their degrees, and they're going on to advanced degrees as well. It's a major sociological, you know, fracture and divide in our country. And yet it's something, and not just in our country, but around the world. 
you know, throughout uh, advanced economies. And that's something very, very difficult to talk about. And, um, and I think it also connects to all of the, you know, questions that people have about, um, you know, same-sex marriage and transgenderism and all of this. Uh, fundamental sexual roles and identities are being broken down systematically by an intellectual as well as political and legal program. And things are being remade, or, or there's an attempt to remake them by a pretty radical group of thinkers. And uh, this is both against human nature, but it's also against, um, you know, uh, the immediate sort of realities that people are facing. And the result is an enormous amount of human misery. You see a lot of, uh, you know, women who have totally embraced uh, feminism, not just as, you know, uh, for the sake of a career, but as a, a kind of philosophy of life. And it often leads them to be very unhappy after middle age, for example. And then on the flip side, you see uh, men who, because, uh, you know, they're no longer called upon to act, act in a masculine way, and they're no longer expected to do so. Instead, we have this uh, notion of toxic masculinity that we hear about. Men, uh, especially those who are less educated, have been sort of cast aside and have been, you know, rendered into non-persons. And so they're very unhappy. And that unhappiness often gets channeled, uh, you know, sometimes in destructive ways with pornography or video games or other things. Sometimes it gets channeled into politics as a kind of populism. But I think you're seeing this polarization on education and also on gender, which is going to continue to get worse until we, you know, acknowledge what's happening and start to return to more traditional sexual roles. Yeah, you mentioned toxic masculinity. I had a former colleague of mine, um, tell me that uh even at the universities here in mexico now they're being forced uh, uh into re-education right that um the, the the professors and administrators you know every semester you have to take a certain number of courses just to stay you know um uh, up to date and one of them had to deal with uh, toxic masculinity and I, I told my colleague that if i had still been teaching there I would have not taken that course and have been will, willing to be um, fired or I would have been speaking out <laughs> during the, the course. And so absolutely crazy. Um, it's it's time for our break. Again, people can go to uh, Tory Anarchist on Twitter X to follow Daniel's uh, work. We'll be right back. From weather and traffic reports to news of political developments, we turn to journalists for the information we need to live our daily lives. Journalists around the world provide the news that is essential for democracy, for personal freedom, and for safety and stability. Yet their ability to report freely and safely is under attack like never before. American journalists are paying with their lives. They face exponential risks, and they've already paid a heavy toll. Death threats, online harassment, and physical attacks are becoming a daily experience of journalists in all countries. We just want people to be safe, to be able to get our readers the information that they need to make informed decisions. They checked my phone and realized that it was Pegasus. I feel myself like I'm naked at the street. These charges were politicized from the start. Facts win. Truth wins. Justice wins. C'est énorme pour moi d'être là, d'être libre. Surtout que je m'y attendais pas du tout. Stand with the free press. Stand with journalists whose reporting won't be silenced. Press freedom is your freedom. 
Hi, I'm Susan Lucci. I never thought about heart disease until I had my own heart event. I had a, a 90% blockage in my main artery and a 75% blockage in the adjacent artery. I received two stents in my arteries, stents developed through research funded by the American Heart Association. Those stents saved my life. Learn more about the American Heart Association's life-saving work at helpheart.org. Pervoy Morich on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. It's our final segment here with Daniel McCarthy uh, on Twitter X uh, at Tory Anarchist, editor of Modern Age. He, he's worked as uh, Internet Communications Coordinator for the Ron Paul 2008 presidential campaign and as senior editor of ISI Books. He's also a graduate of Washington University in St. Louis, where he studied classics. I thought I'd mention that. And to get your thoughts maybe on what's going on abroad, you know, foreign policy, uh, it seems like, you know, the wars seem to be getting out of control for the U.S. Blinken just came out today and, you know, he made a statement saying that it hasn't been this bit bad in the Middle East since at least 1973. The Houthi rebels uh, don't care. They're firing their, you know, five dollar uh, drones um, at the U.S. Navy. And it just seems like Pax America, you know, even people like Niall Ferguson, the establishment historian, he's writing on Bloomberg Weekly that Pax Americana is dead. It just seems like everyone's talking about this. Your, your thoughts on the state of the empire? Well, it's dismaying to see how we are unable to learn even from recent history. So in the case of Afghanistan, for example, we had, um, you know, Al-Qaeda had a base there. You had uh, Taliban sheltering Al-Qaeda. The United States gets in. It doesn't limit its uh, campaign in Afghanistan simply to eradicating al-Qaeda, simply to going after Osama bin Laden, who, of course, ultimately winds up uh, you know, uh, being in Pakistan rather than Afghanistan. But instead, we go in, we overthrow the Taliban. We then occupy Afghanistan for 20 years. And it turns out that despite our enormous advantages of money and material, uh, you know, are much better fighting troops than the sort of untrained uh, you know, uh, rebels that you find among the Taliban. We were still unable to, uh, you know, prevent the Taliban from reclaiming power in Afghanistan, basically the minute we left. And, you know, I, I recall several years ago, I had a discussion with a, uh, you know, a, a, a neocon who wanted to find his way out of neoconservatism. He was basically an editor at a, a major publication, and he wanted to find a, a way for himself to convince himself not to be a neocon anymore. So he talked to me and he asked me what was going to happen in Afghanistan once we left Afghanistan. And he was looking for reassurance. He wanted me to say, oh, it's going to be wonderful. And, uh, you know, everything is, uh, you know, now we can just, you know, close the door on that chapter and everything will be over. But in fact, I told him, you know, honestly, when we leave, it's going to be a hellhole and things are going to collapse very quickly. And uh, even I was surprised by the, the speed with which things did collapse in Afghanistan after we withdrew. Now, we had to withdraw from Afghanistan. It would have been completely pointless to continue, you know, sort of losing the war for another 10 years the way we've been losing for the last 20 years. Um, but we didn't learn any lessons. And now we, we want to do the same thing in Yemen. So in Yemen, you have these Houthis who are, you know, they're a lot like the Taliban. They're religiously motivated. They're actually very tough. Uh, they've, you know, uh, survived a war of about, you know, 10 years or so with Saudi Arabia. Uh, they're not, you know, a high tech fighting force. All they're doing is, you know, firing rockets and shutting down shipping lanes. And uh, so, you know, we think, OK, well, we're going to bomb them and that's going to solve the problem. But of course, you know, Bill Clinton bombed Afghanistan in 1998 and that didn't change anything. 
So sure enough, Joe Biden is bombing the Houthis. That's not deterring them. He's going to bomb them some more now, and that's also not going to work. And eventually the establishment, uh, you know, the people who believe in Pax Americana are going to say, well, gosh, you know, maybe it's not enough that Saudi Arabia, you know, has been financed by the United States and armed by the United States to fight a war against the Houthis up until very recently. Maybe the United States is going to have to directly intervene, you know, alongside Saudi Arabia in order to squash the Houthis. It's going to be an exact replica of everything that went wrong in Afghanistan. No lessons have been learned. No new strategy has been formed. We simply have this idea that missiles and, you know, sort of direct military intervention can actually change fundamental political realities, fundamental cultural realities in these very different parts of the world. The reality is that the situation with the Houthis certainly should be the responsibility of regional powers like Saudi Arabia and the Europeans. European shipping is much more uh, adversely impacted by the Houthis' uh, attacks on the shipping lanes than American shipping is. America is generally not economically or otherwise impacted. Um, so we should get out and we should leave this to the Europeans and to uh, the regional powers. Now, unfortunately, because we already have a lot of troops scattered throughout the region, they're in Iraq, they're in Jordan, they're in Syria, they're everywhere. Um, it's very easy for anyone to attack these troops and then try to draw the United States into a much wider conflict. And uh, that's what's you know happened in the last few days here with an attack that killed three American service members. Joe Biden is now calculating what kind of retaliation and escalation he wants to engage in. But Joe Biden is simply reacting. He has no control over the situation. He is simply going to be, you know, sort of pulled in bit by bit, or he's going to jump in because he feels like he has to be, you know, a kind of uh, a big, big time uh, war president in order to beat Donald Trump. It's going it, to the recipe for disaster here is just astonishing. And the sensible thing, which we should have learned as a lesson from the last 20 and 25 years, really, is that the United States should be much more concerned about the security of our own borders. We should not have, you know, people like the 9-11 hijackers able to come here, able to overstay their visas and commit terrorist acts. We need to prevent that. But we don't need to go into other nations and try to nation build there and try to export democracy and liberalism and, you know, the rainbow flag and everything else to all the different corners of the world. This doesn't work. It gets Americans killed. And it really gets, you know, enormous numbers of people in these other regions killed. It's an absolute humanitarian disaster for the Ukrainians, for the uh, Yemenis, uh, for anyone in, you know, in either of those regions who gets caught in the middle of the United States trying to play world policemen and trying to, you know, uh, protect this uh, mythical Pax Americana. And we're getting this chorus now from people like Lindsey Graham, John Bolton, putting out op-eds last week, bomb, bomb, bomb Iran. And I'm thinking, you know, as you just outlined, that's not really uh, a good <laughs> good idea. Uh, let's bring back diplomacy. Uh, and, and you also wrote uh, an interesting piece titled, Will Africa Save uh, America? And it's interesting, you know, you talk about Christianity. And over the weekend, I was with a friend here in Mexico who was relating to me a story from some book that his wife's wife recently read where an American missionary, Christian missionary went to China and visited this underground Christian church in China where the 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 those Chinese had to travel 30 hours uh to to you know for that Sunday meeting where they closed themselves all day in a small room and the Chinese Christian was saying could you pray for us so that we can have this freedom um to, to worship like you do in the US or, or or West and the American said sorry I can't do that um because he, there was this stark contrast between Christianity today 
in the West, which is which is dead, which isn't this, you know, it's not you know even real Christianity. And he's like, no, we need this sort of Chinese Christianity that we've lost um, in America. So, you know, any, any thought on on that as well as uh, what you were getting at um, in terms of uh, with Africa? It's true, both in China and in Africa, uh, Christians pay a very high price for their faith. They can be persecuted. They can be, uh, you know, unpersoned and excluded from society. Uh, they can be, you know, killed in many places. In, in, in several parts of Africa, for example, you have Islamist insurgencies, which are trying to uh, control the balance of population between uh, Muslims and Christians simply by killing Christians and by, you know, forcing Christians to convert or simply uh, depopulating uh, Christians from their countries. Uh, it's, it's an enormous civilizational conflict. Christianity is a very, you know, enduring religion. It's something that has been able to resist persecution going back all the way to Roman times. And yet here in the West, uh, in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere, uh, there is this sense that Christianity should kind of give up on itself. And that um, that and it's unfortunate because, you know, not only uh, on the part of, you know, sort of more left wing and progressive Christians do you have this sense that, well, Christianity should just never give offense to anyone. It should be this kind of bland and amorphous thing. But even on the right, you have people who say, well, it's okay if Christianity collapses in Europe and in the United States, or at least it's not a you know huge tragedy because Christianity will be replenished by uh, the Christians from Africa and the Christians from places like China. But actually, I think that's wrong because if the civilization that Christianity established in the European world and ultimately in the New World as well, if that collapses, there's going to be nothing to help these Christians in other parts of the world as they face persecution and as they are, you know, forcibly converted, perhaps, either to Chinese communism or to Islam or something else. Um, it is a matter of, you know, sort of world historic significance, whether Christianity can endure within the kind of civilization that it built in the West. If it can't succeed here, it's very unlikely to survive as a, as a you know, sort of uh, a, a cultural um, baseline or a cultural um, determinant in other parts of the world. You'll still have pockets of Christians, but uh, they will be just constantly persecuted. They will be reduced to the level of the Coptic Christians in Egypt, for example. They might exist, they might be tolerated by uh, you know, overlords who despise their religion, but uh, they won't be uh, you know, any stronger or any healthier than that. And their existence will be very precarious. Um, if we don't wanna see that, it's not a matter of the United States trying to police the world in the name of Christianity. That would be a mistake as well, but it rather is showing that Christianity can build a flourishing and prosperous civilization that other people then aspire to become like, not because they're being bombed, but because they actually admire not just our material wealth, but our spiritual strength as well. And that is the kind of example that America needs to give to the rest of the world, ultimately. It's gonna be a long time, I think, before we can give that, that kind of example again, but it's something that we once you know, did to some extent, and it's something that may happen again in the future. But if we don't do that, I think you're going to see actually the prospects for Christianity, not only in the West, but also in the long run in Africa and in China, start to recede and you're going to see some very dark centuries ahead i would agree with you it's it's always um great getting an update from you daniel we're down to 40 seconds uh left uh tell us again the best places we can find you on the internet and any other any projects you've got going on yeah my twitter or x handle is at tory anarchist you can also read modern age at modernagejournal.com all right, uh, keep up uh, the great work, uh, Daniel. I'm I'm signing off here. Steve Malsberg is up next. Uh, don't touch that dial. Keep on rocking in the not so free world. And as Patrick McGuhan used to say, "Be seeing you." Mm -hmm.